Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. Genesis chapter 1 is where we're going to start our time today in the Word. Um, after last week's uh, message on dealing with conflict in marriage, I was uh, wondering if any of you could relate to this post that came up in my newsfeed this week. My wife and I decided to never go to bed angry at each other, so we've been awake since Thursday. Okay, Some of you guys look pretty tired this morning. Just saying. So if any of you can relate to that, I would highly recommend uh, going online and listening to last week's message again, because you didn't get the point. But um, anyway, if you're you're just joining us this morning, you're visiting, you're new, uh, we are uh, deep into a series called um, God Designed Marriage, where we're looking to build strong and healthy marriages according to God's design. If you want a strong, healthy marriage, you have to build on the rock of God's Word. So we're looking at what God's Word has to say about marriage and the family and relationships, that sort of thing, but mainly the marriage relationship. Um, So far we've laid uh, uh, the foundation by looking at the culture, how marriage affects culture, culture affects marriage. Um, We've looked at uh, the canvas of marriage. We've looked at the covenant. We've looked at the charge. We've looked at the care of marriage. And today we're going to continue the tacky alliteration, uh, but hopefully somewhat memorable alliteration. We're going to look at the closeness of marriage today, uh, the intimate side of the marriage relationship. And uh, this is an important subject for us to talk about because I think much of the church's silence on this subject has done us more harm than good. And I I believe that as a pastor, uh, it's my job to help equip parents to be the teacher's of their own children on this subject, right? Don't wait for the public schools to do it. Don't wait for me to do it. I want to equip you to teach your own children. I think that's ideal. And I don't know about you, but um, I never really had the birds and the bees talk growing up. Um, I I grew up thinking uh, sex was something of a taboo, and especially in church. I mean, you could talk about it everywhere, but in the home. Or in the church, right? Because you go to school and everybody's talking about it. It's everywhere. You turn on the TV, it's everywhere. Just don't talk about it at home or in the church was kind of my mindset. And I've never heard anyone say that if, if you want to understand sex or you want to enhance your sex life, study the Bible. How many of you heard that one before? On the contrary, it was probably a religious person who told you there was probably good parts of your body, bad parts of your body. Uh, Most of us, I would imagine, never had anyone that we could talk to comfortably or intelligently with about this subject. Um, As a kid, I remember thinking sex was something sinful. Uh, And I, I grew up in a more traditional church, but we it was never talked about. What I learned about it, and you can probably relate to this, I learned about it from friends at school. 
you know, through jokes and through various comments at the lunch table. Uh, funny story, too, uh, when I was in middle school, uh, we used to have to read uh, books to get certain points, AR reading points, and in one, one, every book we went through, we had to go th- and, and write down several vocabulary words we didn't know the definition of. And uh, I remember reading a book, and I, I picked out this word fornication. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't even know what it, I had no idea what it meant. And uh, I, I was just honest, and, and it, my uh, my seventh grade teacher kind of got a shock, you know, because we had to share these things with the class what we were learning. And so it, it was a big joke, and uh, I remember that to this day, but I was being honest. Um, we need to talk about some of these things, and we need to talk about it with our kids. And uh, that's what I hope today is just to equip parents and uh, to remind uh, couples who are married about the why, why God created sex in the first place. But when I began to open up my Bible, right, I, I was... Uh, about 19, 20 years old when I started to do that. <laughs> and uh, I think I was more surprised than my middle school teacher when I began to understand God is both the author and the inventor of sex. And He created man and woman to enjoy it before sin ever even entered the world. It's right there in Genesis 1 and 2. Before sin, Adam and Eve, it says, were naked and unashamed before God in the consummation of their marriage. And so it's a, it's a good thing. It was created before sin ever even entered the world. It's a good thing. The first command in the Bible, Genesis 1.28, is to be what? Fruitful and multiply. Not only that, it's also very theological as we're going to see. It's not just a good thing. It's a, a God thing. And it's a very powerful one. It's very powerful. Um, Because it is very powerful, it is something in our lives that we have to handle with care. We have to approach it wisely. When something's powerful, uh, like dynamite, you handle it with more care, don't you? Dynamite. Think about dynamite. You 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 can use dynamite, you get it into the right hands of someone, and they can use it for good. Uh, for, for hundreds of years, they tried to complete this canal from the Ionian Sea to the Aegean Sea through Corinth. You know, the book of Corinthians, there's an isthmus through there. And for years, emperor after emperor tried to create this canal through there. Well, it wasn't until Alfred Nobel, from where we get the Nobel Peace Prize, uh, invented dynamite that that was actually completed. So you get dynamite into the right hands, a very powerful thing, and you can use it for good a channel of blessing, but you get dynamite into the wrong hands, it can be a very bad thing, right? You can use it for destruction. Okay, Sex is a very powerful thing, and it can be either a powerful blessing in our lives, a channel of blessing, or it can be a very powerful thing in a bad way. It can be more like a curse in our lives. And today we're going to look at three reasons why God created sex and how we can preserve the sanctity of it. Let's look at Genesis 1, 26 through 28 first. God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, 
be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over everything that moves on the earth. So, again, verse 28, you see there, God says, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Don't, don't erect a, a tower of Babel, right? Which they eventually did. But um, that's the first reason right there why God created sex, and it's for the propagation of mankind, the reproduction. We're, we're using a, a, a P word alliteration today, so I went procreation. Okay, procreation. And this is basic biology that our culture needs today. <laughs> but um, through the physical union, through man and woman coming together, we have the privilege of connecting with the sovereign God over the universe in creating another eternal human being. Is that not powerful to think that through your physical union, you bring another eternal being into this world? You get to connect with the God of the universe in that, in His divine plan and purpose for that child. And what a responsibility. Every time a child is made, it is a, it's, a, it's a miracle, isn't it? It is a miracle. It's a big deal. And when He created us, male and female, He equipped us for that. And I believe His blessing on Adam and Eve was right then and there. He blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. That was He was, he was blessing them. He was giving the actual impartation, uh, the imparting the ability to propagate, to reproduce. And um, while our culture tries to create a gender blender, and in some case... Uh, some cases now, is thinking of, of babies as, as parasites. Uh, the Bible says our attitude should be the exact opposite of that. Children should be looked at as a blessing from God. They're not a parasite. They are a, a blessing. A blessing. And, and praise the Lord, right, for that recent SCOTUS ruling, uh, overturning Roe versus Wade. We need to keep praying for our nation. I want to remind us to keep praying for our nation and to pray now, especially for our state representatives, um, to see children as a precious blessing and not as a threat to personal prosperity. Uh, That whole idea behind abortion is nothing other than uh, repackaged paganism, right? I'm going to sacrifice my infant to a God, a false God, in order to give me some sort of physical prosperity. Right? That's what's going on today. It's neo-paganism. But in Deuteronomy 7, 13 and 14, uh, God was promising the nation of Israel that if they kept the Mosaic law, if they kept the, the covenant, uh, Mosaic Covenant, if they remain true to him, then he was going to bless them with offspring. They were, it was so, it's always seen, children are always seen as a blessing. It says, he says, I will, it says, or Moses is talking to Israel, he will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb. What's the fruit of the womb? The children, right? And the fruit of your ground, your grain and your new wine and your oil, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock in the land which he swore to your forefathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples, and there will be no male or female barren among you and your cattle. And so now, uh, please notice this is not uh, a promise to us, but specifically a promise to the nation of Israel under this Mosaic Covenant law. 
in a unique time period where they actually stewarded the theocratic, uh, mediatorial kingdom of God on earth. The kingdom of God was on earth in that time through the, the nation of Israel. And it was a blessing for them. They had blessings and cursings if they kept it or didn't keep it. And there are very many godly people today who, who love Jesus. Um, they serve Jesus with all their heart who, who can't have kids. Um, God has different wills for each of our lives, and, and we need to trust Him that His will is good no matter what. And I say that, that's a lot easier to say than to do, right? But uh, the point is, we need to see, I think, through that, I, the reason I share that is because we need to see God's sovereignty over it. God is sovereign over this area of our lives, and, and we need to see it as His blessing. Psalm 139, 13 through 16 says, uh, God is sovereign over this area of our lives. We need to trust Him in that. Right? All, uh, uh, we just read that verse this morning, didn't we? During worship, all, uh, all of us are, are skillfully and wonderfully knitted together by God in the darkness of the womb. He can create a masterpiece in complete darkness in the darkness of the womb. And it says, in his book are written all the days of our lives, all the, the, the days that were ordained for us before there was even yet one of them. So God is sovereign over this area. Psalm 127 says, Behold, children are a, a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward like arrows in the hands of a warrior. So are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. So we look at children as a reward, as a gift, as a heritage, as a blessing. They're, 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 a, they're fruit that sweetens our lives in many ways. So to bear children is the first reason uh, for sex. However, there is some danger in thinking of sex as merely a reproductive act. So we also need to see that God created sex in part to be something Pleasurable. Like I said uh, last week in James chapter 4, there is a, a way in which God has designed us for pleasure. And uh, pleasure can be uh, a good or bad depending on our character, whether we seek it our way or whether we seek it God's way. So let's look at that. Um, the second main title or main point in your bulletin there, uh, pleasure. Second reason. And this... This might be a little surprising for some of us. But again, the first glimpse of the intimate side of marriage that we see in Scripture is in Genesis 2, 24 through 25, where Adam and Eve are just delighting in one another. I mean, Adam's just excited. This is like he's blown away by Eve. You know, she's bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And it says they're they're naked, they're unashamed, and they're consummating their marriage in, in it, it, just enjoying it. They're just enjoying it. And all of that right before a, a righteous and holy God. No guilt, no shame. The, the, that's what the public marriage covenant does. It grants you this license to retreat privately and enjoy that one flesh relationship. And when done God's way, it's a beautiful thing. Uh, there's no shame. There's no guilt. There's there's joy, there's delight, there's, there's pleasure, there's security in that. Um, I, I'm guessing most of us have, have done 
relationships our way, right? And then we've done relationships God's way. Which one of those produced more security for you? More delight, more fulfillment. It's God's way. When you do marriage God's way, when you wait till marriage and, and, you, and you, you exercise self-control in that, it brings so much security. And I've kind of talked about this already, so I'm, I'm just mentioning it. But when you, when you exercise self-control, when you wait until marriage, you are building into that future marriage, into your relationship, you're building trust a much-needed foundation of trust in your relationship because each partner knows that the other partner has self-control before marriage. If you have self-control before marriage, therefore, you're going to have self-control after marriage. Because after you get married, all the temptations and the lusts don't go away, do they? They're still there. You're still going to be tempted. But if you've, if you've exercised sized uh, self-control before marriage, you have more trust after marriage. I mean, you know that your partner is not driven by their lusts. And I'm afraid that's the reason a lot of people get married. They're in it for that number one Hollywood goal, right? Of the, the sex. But if you exercise self-control, you see your partner's not in it for sex. That's not their primary goal. Uh, you have security. And you don't have to worry about performing virility you know when, when when we talked about the marriage covenant several weeks ago i told you about a man named george who uh basically he divorced his wife he, he bought a bachelor pad near the beach and he started sleeping around and every morning he would wake up and he said he would he just hated his empty lifestyle he said this lifestyle is everybody's dream but it's cold and it's empty. He said, everybody would love to have my life, but he said, I've lived it. It's not, it's not what it seems. He said, you know what I'd really like? He was talking to his friend. You know what I'd really like? I'd like to go home at night, smell dinner cooking, hug my wife hello, and spend the evening telling her and showing her how much I love her. I'd like to go to bed with her and not have to prove my virility, not have to sexually perform above the call of duty, but just to give her love go to sleep knowing she'd be there in the morning. That's what he missed. I mean, he, he was living the epitome of Hollywood's, you know, ideal picture of relationships, right? And he said, it's not all it's cracked up to be. It's empty, it's unfulfilling, it's cold, but God's way brings security. God's way brings fulfillment. And Scripture encourages married couples to delight in each other frequently to delight in each other frequently. The Song of Solomon is uh, basically a book about that. It's about a couple finding each other and then enjoying each other. You guys know the, the, book of, or the Song of Solomon, right? I see some smiles out there. How beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves. Your neck's like the Tower of David. And your hair's like a flock of goats. You guys have read it, right? You guys know you talk to your wife like that. I told my wife the other day, your hair's like a flock of goats. <sighs> There's no blemish in you. Perfect goats. You ought to read it. It's great. Um, it is a book we're studying. Because you see this couple just 
enthralled with each other, enjoying one another. They just love each other. And they're delighting in their marriage relationship. Proverbs 5, 15 through 19 encourages a man to uh, enjoy his wife, to stay faithful to her. Every young man needs to read the first several chapters of Proverbs. Drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and graceful doe, let her breasts satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. Don't you love that? Did you know that kind of talk was in the Bible? Sex is a delight to be enjoyed within the marriage covenant. Be exhilarated always with your spouse. Enjoy them often. We see the, the same uh, encouragement in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, 1 through 6, from coming from the Apostle Paul. Paul encourages a husband and wife to mutually submit to each other's needs in this area. Uh, with frequency, he says, um, I think I had a slide for that, concerning the things about which you wrote, Okay, so the, the Corinthians actually wrote to Paul and said, hey, we have a question here. And he's answering them. They had a question about this. He says, Considering the, concerning the things about which he wrote, it's good for a man not to touch a woman, but because of immoralities, each man is to have, uh, each man is to have her own. Did I spell that wrong? Wow, that's bad. Yeah. Uh, I didn't copy and paste that one. I typed that one up way wrong. But anyway, each man is to have his own wife, each, each wife her own husband. But uh, the husband is to fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. So just be aware there is a mistake in, the, in your notes, your hard copies. But um, when a husband and wife have become one, uh, they have given up the exclusive right to themselves. Uh, two have become one, so now... When you're apart, you're only half of what you really should be. You two have become one. And, and I like how Paul says, um, I say this by way of concession, not of command, because neither the husband nor the wife should, should have to command their spouse to fulfill their duties. And he's, not saying, he's not saying command each other to do this. It's a voluntary reciprocation, right? Some give and some take on both Spouses. And so the, uh, in, in premarital uh, counseling, I'll, I'll talk about how the spouse who desires maybe to make love more often can exercise what? A little self-control in this area. Well, and, and then, then the spouse who maybe doesn't desire to make love as often can, you know, submit and love their spouse in this area more than they planned on. You know, so you just, it's, by way of concession, not by way of command. It's just give and take. It's give and take. And uh, this passage is very helpful because in marriage, we should try to keep our focus 
not on pleasing ourselves, not on our own pleasure, but what? Pleasing our spouse. Don't you see that in his instruction there? Pleasing your spouse. Uh, the best lovemaking in the world is not limited to two people with perfectly sculpted bodies, you know, rock-hard abs, but between two healthy lovers who are more interested in satisfying the other's needs. You want a fulfilling, intimate marriage relationship. Focus on meeting your spouse's needs, not just your own, right? To deprive one another um, for more than, you know, a, a period of time, you know, like, like Paul talked about, to deprive one another, uh, to think of sex as only a reproductive act would be harmful or maybe even detrimental to the marriage. Um, in his book, The Act of Marriage, Tim LaHaye tells about how um, back when he was a ministerial student um, in school, one of his friends had gotten married during that time, and it was about, you know, and he was an easygoing guy, but a year into the marriage relationship, the guy's demeanor just changed, and he became very, very irritated. And uh, basically, Tim said he got his first uh, counseling session in this area <laughs> right then and there as a ministerial student um, because it turned out that uh, his friend's wife was under the notion that sex was only for propagation of the race. It was only something mechanical. And it was undisclosed before they got married. But since they delayed, agreed to delay in starting a family until after graduation, he became rather frustrated, as you can imagine. And uh, fast forward several years, LaHaye is uh, now a pastor. He's been preaching for, for 20 years, and he's confronted by a lonely-looking woman in her 40s at the end of a, one of his church services. And guess who it was? It was his friend's ex-wife. Uh, apparently, 20 years of marriage and four kids later, he eventually left her over this this issue right if if and that you know his needs weren't being met well people around us can pick up on that can't they if your needs aren't being met your emotional needs aren't being met your sexual needs aren't being met that's going to be very evident to those around you and someone's going to come and try to fill that gap right where that need is and that's what happened with him he became attracted to someone who was just responsive to his needs and uh, he couldn't tolerate herself and post celibacy anymore. And LaHaye says, while his decision to leave his family cannot be condoned in a Christian, I'm confident, knowing the youthful character of the man and his commitment to Christ, that it would not have happened if his wife had not been afflicted with an unbiblical mental attitude toward married lovemaking. What kind of God would go out of his way to equip his special creatures for an activity give them the necessary drives to consummate it and then forbid to use it. You see what he's saying? Is God created us for us for this and um, gives us that drive, but we have to steward it wisely. So he says when we look at it objectively, we realize that sex was given at least in part for marital enjoyment. So the, uh, the third heading is the picture now, the picture. Uh, we've talked about this uh, more than once, and so I won't belabor the point, but marriage is painting a theological picture, or it's reflecting a theological picture. Um, the first one that we've talked about in depth is that of uh, the plurality 
and the oneness of God. We have a triune God. He's one God in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All of them are God. They're all eternally existing in three persons. All equally God. Uh, but there's only one God. So there's a plurality and oneness to Him. Well, when God created man in His image, uh, He did it, I think, to reflect His relational nature. Uh, when you look at the, the Genesis account, you'll notice how His creation of man and woman is described in both singulars and plurals. Male and female, He created him, or He created him, he cre- male and female, He created them. Um, the order of creation, remember this? God creates Adam from the dirt, from the dust of the ground. Why didn't he create Eve from the dust of the ground too? That's not the way he did it. So he creates Adam and then he takes from Adam's side a rib from Adam and he fashions Eve out of Adam and joins her back to Adam. They were joined back together again. Right? There's a theological picture. There's a reason why God did it that way. And it's very powerful. Um, the two, they are two and yet one, both Adam and Eve. And I don't think this picture of the, the triune nature of God is pictured, or the relational nature of God is, is pictured anywhere greater than in that physical union when a man and woman come together. And then as we've learned from Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, marriage also reflects Christ in the church, right? Marriage reflects Christ in the church. It, it pictures that. Ephesians 5.32 says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul says this mystery, it's a mysterious picture, this mystery is great, but I'm referring to Christ and the church. So you have to think about that for a while. Uh, how your marriage is reflecting Christ and the church. Uh, are you loving your wife, husbands, wives? Are you submitting to your, your husband? When the husband and wife, think about this, when the husband and wife finally come together to consummate their marriage, after that time of waiting, right, it's a glorious moment. Uh, it's one of the most enrapturing moments that one can experience in this life. And I think that's just a small picture of the rapture moment when Christ's body, His wife, His bride, the church, is raptured to meet her husband, Christ, in the air, right? At His coming, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. It's, it's a glorious moment. When the husband and wife come together, it's just a small picture, it's just a small taste of the most glorious moment when the church and her husband, Christ, come together once and for all to consummate that. And we get to enjoy the, 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 the marriage supper of the Lamb, right? Remember, guys, in heaven there's, there's no marrying and giving in marriage. The only marriage in heaven is our, our marriage to Christ and the wedding supper of the Lamb. And uh, as you can see, lovemaking is very theological. It's very theological. And I think for that reason, it has to be kept pure. You have to keep the marriage bed pure. The, the, the picture that marriage is, these two pictures that we've just talked about, for me, these are the, the greatest incentives for purity and faithfulness in your marriage. Is you're painting a picture through your faithfulness to God in this area of life, we're painting a mysterious picture for the world 
of who God is and what He is like and His relationship between Christ and the church. You're, you're modeling Him and you're glorifying Him in your marriages. And, and God cares about the pictures. God cares about the marriage picture. You remember the, the typology that it is. You remember what happened to Moses when he ruined the typology in the Old Testament when he struck the rock twice and he wasn't supposed to? He was disciplined by God, wasn't he? God cares about the typology. He cares about the picture. And I'll just let you dwell on that for a while, okay? Think about your marriage picture. And are you honoring it? Or are you, are you ruining the picture that it's intended to be? Um, but since we all wrestle with the sin nature, let's, let's talk about our need to preserve the sanctity of the marriage bed. Uh, we're looking at the fourth, uh, fourth P, preservation. Okay, Hebrews 13, 14 or 13.4 says, Marriage is to be held in honor among all. It's to be held up high in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be kept pure, undefiled. And uh, I think everyone here who is married knows that just because you get married, it doesn't mean that the lust and the temptations go away. They just change a little bit. Okay, uh, Satan, society, and the sin nature are all trying to get us to stumble and to ruin the picture that God has, has made it to be. And so we have to guard our marriages. And uh, real quick, I just have four more uh, P words that <laughs> to preserve the sanctity of marriage. First is prioritize. Uh, prioritize your relationship with God because first and foremost, we were created with a relationship with God. And when that relationship with God isn't there, there's an empty hole there no matter what you do. I mean, you're going to seek fulfillment and all sorts of things. And uh, sex, I believe, is the greatest picture of the soul's longing to be intimate with God. I mean, we long for someone to know us completely, to know us inside and out, transparently, someone who's going to connect with us on a deeper level. And, and, you know, if we don't have that relationship with God where we're connecting with Him intimately and He knows us inside and out, right? He knows you better than you know yourself. But um, don't you talk to God about things that you don't talk to anybody else about, right? You long to connect with someone on a deeper level, and if you don't, you're not connecting with God, you don't have a relationship with God, uh, you're going to try to um, satisfy that longing through sex. And though, yes, sex can be very satisfying when done God's way, it cannot ultimately satisfy the soul's longing for a relationship with God. Okay, when, when our vertical relationship with Him is in its proper place, the desire for anything less than God's standard in this area of our lives is going to be greatly curbed. Okay, uh, or just prioritize your relationship with God. Remember in marriage, the closer you are to Him, the closer you're going to be to each other. So that's... That was that slide. But uh, secondly, put off and put on. Uh, put off providing opportunities for the flesh and put on Christ's power. Romans 13, 14 says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. I would recommend memorizing that verse. It's very simple. I did a whole sermon on this verse once, so I could go six pages if you want me to on it. Um, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. So first, uh, put off 
providing opportunities for the flesh. Basically, all that means is make wise decisions. Right? Don't put yourself in a situation that's just going to entice your flesh to, to, uh, to tempt you. You know, it's, it's just one of those things. Be careful about where you go, what you surround yourself with. Sometimes we provide opportunities, I think, for the sin nature, the flesh to be enticed, and then we wonder why we struggle with being pure. Why we struggle with purity. So if you're, you're trying to lose weight, you don't keep a candy dish on your table, do you? Like on your bed, on your nightstand? You don't keep your M&Ms on your nightstand if you're trying to lose weight, do you? Or you leave a cake sitting on the kitchen counter with the lid off of it and a knife and a fork right beside it? Right? No, that's all Paul's saying there. He's like, just quit providing opportunities for your flesh to be enticed. You know, get rid of it. Throw the cake out. Throw the candy out. I don't know. Get rid of it. Uh, if you want to stay pure, you have to throw out the trash that tempts you. You know? How, how many of you guys watched that old movie, Fireproof? Kirk Cameron? Don't you love it when he takes the computer out that's been tempting him and he just takes a baseball bat to it and just smashes it? You don't have to be that extreme, right? Like now we've got apps today like Covenant Eyes or something like that that actually will filter all of the junk out and won't let you click on that stuff. So, you know, so your devices don't become a vice in your life. Anyway, if you're a man, watch that movie. That is amazing. Fireproof and then uh, Courageous is another one. But, uh, yeah, you can find an accountability partner. Take advantage of those different apps like Covenant Eyes. Um, Memorize Scripture. Psalm 119.9, 1 Corinthians 10.13. What's 1 Corinthians 10.13 say? God will not tempt you beyond what you can bear, right? He always provides a way out. And, 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 it, and if you feel like you're, you're going you're gonna to fold, you're going you're gonna to give in to the sin nature, what do you do? You run, <laughs> right? Just get out of there sometimes. Flee immorality, Paul had to say to the Corinthians. It was a very lust-driven culture in Corinth. And Paul just says, flee immorality. Just like Joseph in Egypt, when Potiphar's wife grabbed a hold of him, he ran, he fled, he got out of there. Sometimes you just have to do that. Secondly, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember your calling in Christ. It's because of who you are in Christ. You are now called to a new, you have a new calling in Christ. You've been washed You've been justified. You've been purified in Christ. You have a perfect position before God in Christ. And now you're walking this life. Uh, and, and, and the power to walk in this life comes from your position in Him. And so you now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, have, have, have the power you need. You have everything you need to walk with God. Remember that. Because a lot of people say, well, I just can't, I can't do it right. Poor Eeyore. You know, I just struggle so much. Well... Claim the promises that God has given to you in Christ. Claim your position in Christ. You have a new divine nature now called the Holy Spirit who gives you everything you need for life and godliness. Focus on your calling in Christ. Rely on God's power. And this isn't just self-help here, right? Sometimes you do have to run and just get out of there. But sometimes you need to learn to rely on God's power to overcome the struggles. And you have to choose to live for His glory. And uh, one thing I always mention too, I want to mention this, um, in premarital counseling, I say put off working far from home. 
Um, every job has its seasons. I know where you're going to be away from home, but I don't think the consistence, consistently long-distance jobs like over-the-road trucking are for married couples. Leave those jobs for the singles, guys. You know, Deuteronomy 24.5, this is a biblical principle, by the way. I'm not just saying this to say it. Um, one of the reasons I'm saying it is because the statistics out there uh, support this Bible verse, right? The, the guys were away from home, you know, it, the marriages end in divorce a lot of times. So Deuteronomy 24.5, uh, the law of Moses forbade newlywed men from serving in the army or being charged with any duty that would keep him away from home his first year of marriage. He shall be free at home one year and shall give happiness to his wife whom he has taken. You know what's really interesting about that is the command immediately follows regulations on divorce. You go back into that context. That command follows all this stuff on divorce and how to handle divorce. And then it says, let the man stay at home for a year and give pleasure to his wife, right? Make his wife happy. I think we're supposed to get the hint there. It's not good. You have to fight for your marriage, even if it means taking a pay cut, even if it means changing jobs. Uh, I used to, as soon as I, I got engaged, I quit the night shift because I wanted to be home with my family. I quit night shift. I quit afternoons. I actually had the courage to go do what I wanted to do at the time, which was farming. And I quit the railroad and started farming. I wanted to be home with my family at night. And obviously, it has a harvest season, right? We're, you know, a harvest widows, they call them, for three months. But, you know... You have to fight for your marriage. Uh, thirdly, perfect. Remember your spouse is perfect for you. Your spouse is perfect for you. Whenever you're tempted, remember that just like God made Eve perfectly for Adam and brought her to Adam at this just the right time, so God in His sovereignty made your spouse for you. Think about that. God made His spouse for you, and He brought both of you together at just the right time. God could have kept you from meeting, but He didn't. He brought you together. However it happened in His perfect will and timing, you are perfect for each other. And, and if, and I tell young guys, you know, if your mind, if married guys, if your mind starts to wander and you start to wonder about someone else, you need to remember that you probably wouldn't like her personality anyway, right? Uh, you married your wife because you liked her personality. Don't sit there and, and let the lust... Uh, just take over your thoughts because, and that's that's what I say. I say, well, I, I wouldn't like her anyway. And I and I go to God and I say, thank you, God, for my wife. She is perfect for me. You have to remind yourself of that. Uh, God introduced you two because you're perfect for each other. And last, purposeful. You have to be purposeful in your day-to-day -day interactions with each other. Our everyday experiences and communication uh, between spouses, it affects our intimacy, the bodily union. Uh, when you guys come together in physical union, it's going to be cold, unexpectedly cold if you aren't connecting on a deeper level throughout the day in the mind of in the area of the mind and the spirit, right? We're not you can't compartmentalize um, sex into just the body part. You've got to connect mind, uh, spirit and body. 
Okay, you got to connect with. If you're not connecting, if you're not on the same page mentally, you're not on the same page spiritually. You're not praying together. You can expect the symptom to be a cold sexual relationship when you come together. It can be cold if you're not connecting on those other levels. And I'll give you my favorite verse for this one: Proverbs twenty-one nine. I told my wife it was my favorite verse this week that I got to share. It's better to live in the live in the corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Better to live on the roof than in a house with a quarrelsome wife. And I was joking. And she liked that. She likes my jokes, even though you guys don't. Um, that is a, that's hilarious, right? That's a hilarious verse. But isn't it true? It's very true. I mean, if living with someone is like walking on eggshells every day, you're not going to experience any sort of tender intimacy when you come together, right? No one wants to be close and intimate with someone who's a grumpy, cranky, complaining person all day, every day, right? So you want to be aware of your daily interactions. You want to stay connected uh, together. You're you're connecting on a deeper level uh, through your communication, Um Heart to heart, you're connecting on the spiritual level. You're you're praying for each other and with each other. You just you got to connect there. And, and and if your your sex relationship is cold, it's usually just a symptom of not connecting um, elsewhere. So I say, you know, do just try to maintain positive little daily interactions between each other. You know, send your uh, Send your, send your spouse a, a text letting them know that you're thinking about them. Let them know that you love them, that sort of thing. Um, hold hands throughout the day. Men, hold hands with your wife, uh, even if you don't like it. Um, buy them some flowers. Buy them a gift. Right? Get, get your wife her favorite treat. Um, my wife likes Necco wafers for some reason, this old-fashioned candy. I've got to pick those up now that I'm talking about it. Um, Write a love note, right? Hard work. I know, it's so hard to write a love note and sit down for five minutes. Do it anyway, right? It goes a long ways. Leave a love note, buy some flowers, whatever. Talk about the things that are going on in your heart that you wouldn't talk to anyone else about. Um, that's, that's huge. You connect on a deeper level. When you're talking with your spouse about things that you don't talk to anyone else about, that's saying, I'm here, I'm being transparent with you, I love you, you're bringing them in. There's just something about it. Because as soon as you start to talk to somebody else, I mean, that's like the first fruits of adultery right there, is when you start to talk to somebody else, maybe at work or somewhere else, about things that you don't talk to your spouse about, and you tell them that, that's basically just opening the door to adultery. You're saying, I'm letting you know how I feel, and eventually... You know, the next step's just down the road. Everybody knows that, right? They can read that. So talk about the deep things going on in your heart. Ask how you can pray for them. One of the best things you can do um, to, to actually kindle intimacy, to s- strike the original match, is to pray together. Just pray together. When you, when you pray for and with each other, you're connecting on a deeper spiritual level, level and that's where true intimacy starts. And uh, each week I give a challenge. Uh, with this series and my challenge to you this week is to sit down uh, maybe with an older couple and just learn from them. Ask questions and just, just let them talk.